stinging rebuke. The IMF tells the UK government to reevaluate its tax cut plan as sterling resumes its decline. The Bank of England steps in to calm market volatility as the Chancellor's mini budget tax cuts provoke a major reaction. Hello. This does feel like a moment. In a matter of a few days, we've gone from a Bank of England in full-on tightening mode, hiking rates by 50 basis points and unwinding the bond purchases it had built up over COVID, to a bank forced to step in to bond markets to ease parts that had seized up. This was, of course, triggered by the new British Chancellor's mini-budget last week, which frightened the horses, to put it mildly. You've really got to keep your wits about you in these blink-or-you'll-miss-it times. And my crack panel of guests has been doing exactly that when we spoke on Tuesday afternoon, but that was before the Bank of England intervened on Wednesday morning. The conversation is still on point, though, as they discuss what next for the UK, where on earth to look for green shoots in the rest of the world, and where investors can allocate as we move into new territory. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today are portfolio managers Tim Foster from Fixed Income and Lee Hemsworth from Equities and Andressa Tezin, a senior sovereign debt analyst with a focus on emerging markets. Welcome to you all. Hi. Thank you. you. Hello. Thank you. Now, Tim and Lee, you're on the front line managing money. Thanks, first of all, for stepping away from that and uh, taking off your tin hats. What's it like, though, when markets are acting like this, Tim? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly certainly been an extraordinary. I mean, extraordinary week. Um, you know, obviously we had uh, the UK fiscal event on Friday, but before that, you know, we'd had the Fed. Uh, you know, quite a lot of things going on. I guess in fixed income, what's been strange about the recent experience is actually we've had very high volatility all year. So you know, if you look at kind of bond market volatility, I mean, that spiked up most recently in kind of March 2020, and that was pretty intense when it happened, but only lasted a few weeks. Are you saying that you're used to this now? You take it in your stride. I, I, I don't think we're quite used to that but certainly you get you know there's been a certain certain sense in which all year has been extremely extremely volatile I mean I think this you know particular kind of UK um, uh, kind of reaction is very unusual and clearly very unusual after after um, a budget but uh, in some ways as I say it kind of comes at the end of a, a long period now of kind of intense heightened volatility really. And Lee the view from the equities floor? Yeah I think similarly um We've got used to a period of certainly uncertainty in markets, but um, I think unfortunately I'm I'm old enough to have seen quite a few shock events in markets, and and I think that we always try and stay as calm as possible on the actual day and see it as an opportunity. There's often mispriced opportunities, so looking for the positive in in all of this and and accepting it's a very short term negative. But um, it creates an opportunity to get into certain things. So it's an opportunity to rethink, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it, and I think it's always one of those things that on the day, the best thing you can do is simply go away, try and calm yourself down, and then think about it and come back in a more positive frame of mind and try and pick off the opportunities. That's a very helpful um, rule of thumb, I think, for uh, for all of us. Well, um, Andressa, welcome to you. And you deal with emerging markets in particular, and there have been some. <laughs> some might say unkind parallels um, that were drawing a comparison between the UK and EM markets. Are they fair? Well, certainly UK has all the ingredients, I would say. Um, 
the most important ingredients we had as an emerging market is we have a current account deficits, you have fiscal deficit, you have ballooning debt, you had central banks behind the curve, and most recently we had political instability. So this is all the the ingredients that we have for emerging markets. So definitely UK has all the ingredients. Uh, although perhaps not the good weather, which a lot of emerging markets have. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's that's have, uh, on the other side, the flip coin. I'm going to try and pin you down, though. That sounds like a yes. You you do think it's behaving in that way? Well, behaving, yes. But a one important difference between emerging markets and developed markets or UK is obviously per capita income. And second, you are emerging in emerging markets because you not only have lower per capita income, but also you are expecting that these countries are going to be growing at a faster pace. Therefore, that's why they can have current account deficits because they are financing their infrastructure and their growth, which in the case of a developed markets coming to comparisons to emerge market is more like submerging rather than emerging because they are already on the top of, of the R&D, for example, on the research development infrastructure. You expect them to be already at the at the end of the chain. Demographics are completely exactly. different. It's a very different growth um, growth picture. Okay, Tim. Um, all the attention initially was on sterling, but this really is a bond story, isn't it? I think I'd go further than that and say within a bond within the bond story, it's really actually a lot more about expectations for interest rates than it is about extra supply. I mean, there was a bit more you know supply than expected announced um, for the gilt market on Friday, but I think you know if you look at the relevant relative moves of sort of gilt yields compared to swap yields, for example, which gives you a good you know measure of, of, of the sort of supply impact. I think it's really much more about you know building in you know 150 basis points more sort of Bank of England hikes by by you know by the end of next year that sort of thing so it's much more a kind of a central bank um, uh, story really and it's the the size and the speed of those moves can you take us sort of back where we all were a month ago to where we are now yeah, I mean, I think, as, as I say, so something like about 150 basis points. So we, we're now kind of pricing about 5.7 for the bank rate by the end of next year. You know, I think three weeks ago, that was sort of just over four. So quite a big move. But I think really, yes, the speed more than anything. I mean, um, sterling currency has kind of come up a little bit, but certainly very rapid sort of readjustment. And, and I think as well, a readjustment that's not really... You can't really kind of rationally justify it by looking at, say, the new information that we got on Friday, which was actually pretty small. I mean, you know, the major fiscal um, uh, expansion had already been, you know, well trailed for sort of a couple of weeks uh, prior to the fiscal event. So, I mean, markets, I guess the nature of markets is they're not they're not rational a lot of the time. Um, you know, maybe there's a sort of sense of a sort of, you know, incremental change being, you know, just a sort of straw that broke the camel's back or something. Um, but, yeah, certainly it's certainly sort of surprisingly rapid reaction I'd say. Can we look at that a little bit more detail? So you're saying that because there were so many leaks about this both in the leadership campaign of intentions and then in the run-up to the fiscal event there were quite a lot of leaks that were going out into the the various papers that you're saying that actually markets shouldn't have been surprised by. I, I don't think so I mean um, uh, I mean you, I always think there's the sort of famous sort of apocryphal quote from a sort of US senator I think from the sort of 60s saying you know a billion here and a billion there and you know sooner or later you're talking real money but um, uh, you, know, you think if you look at the stuff that was trailed I mean the the energy support package obviously is enormously expensive. The government's budgeting 60 billion uh, over six months for that. That was well trailed uh, um, in advance. The corporation tax changes, um, um, you know, not putting corporation tax up, that's very expensive as well. That costs about 17 billion a year, you know, in perpetuity. The new information, for example, on Friday about income taxes, um, um, you know, very, very small. That was quite small. That was only going to be about um, 2 billion for the 45 pence um, rate, the top rate.
rate of, uh, of, of income tax. Yes, and the reduction of the 20% rate down to 19, that, that's only actually coming in one year earlier than it was previously planned to anyway. So that's about 5 billion, but only over the, over the next fiscal year. Okay, so some context there that the, the, the numbers perhaps weren't quite as frightening as, um, as they seemed, um, but it might have been all in the, in the presentation. I mean, this is, a, this is a kind of time of, you know, dollar strength is kind of putting all kinds of pressures, you know, across the world. And I guess if you're, you know, amongst a sort of G7 or G10 pack, you know, if you sort of step a little bit away from that with some radically different messaging, I think that's probably, that probably explains part of the difference, actually. That's going to shake things up. Andressa, what's the playbook in emerging markets when governments do behave like this, when they start chasing growth by cutting taxes but well, it's not the initial there, reaction is, is is definitely being punished by the markets so you do see exchange rate depreciation exactly by the book well, that's exactly what is happening in UK uh, exchange rate depreciation rates sell off um, all the swaps go higher and uh, you have political instability concerns about the governability coalitions governments and then at the end you end up having what we call the, the moment that the governments actually wake up. And the way this happens is definitely via the pressure from the markets. And what is their way out here? These economists, they need to have some anchor. Either is via fiscal, effects, uh, or rates. Obviously, you're not going to have a FX cap or any kind of a peg with the, with the pound, for example. But you can have, actually, the BOE hiking more. So the at least in emerging markets, you do have an overshoot of interest rate hikes because you perceive that you need to have a much bigger premium to hold that risk. All these other risks that are talking about, the current account deficit, the fiscal, the debt, the instability. So everything has to be in one place and it usually comes initially from the central bank, especially when the central bank is independent. You were talking about the um, the government's waking up. I'm reminded of that famous quotation um, by a chap called James Carville, who was a campaign strategist for Bill Clinton in the 1990s. He said, I used to think if there was reincarnation, I wanted to come back as the president or the pope or a baseball hitter. But now I want to come back as the bond market because you can intimidate everyone. Now, Clinton was forced into a policy reversal then. Do you think we'll, we'll see the same here? Lee, what do you think? Yeah, I think maybe, maybe in in contrast to what what's been been said so far, I think it, the markets have been spooked by the timing of of the the fiscal stimulus and the effect it might have. And if we wind the clock back to the problems in 08 and 09, what you've arguably got is you've got leakage from the system that the people that have been given the tax cuts are the ones that are more inclined to save. Uh, the benefit and so you've got a leakage from the system the currency collapse with a, a net importing country will cause a further leakage to the to the system and so hence why the bond markets are partly reacting like they are and the reaction then or the thought process stroke worry is that to, to part fund it you either get the monetary policy reaction in terms of interest rates going up or a further statement in November saying that there's going to be various austerity measures etc which acts as a further uh, leakage from the system at a time when you actually need some injections going into a potentially serious downturn and so you've created a problem a much bigger problem than there might have been already and so I, I think it's it's a it's a poor outlook, which is why the markets have reacted in the way that they have done. It's not just simply looking at the immediate cost of of the tax cuts, etc. It's the implications that that creates, given the position that we're in at the moment. It's the wrong timing, basically. And, and, Andressa, given that we are where we are, 
Are there any lessons that the British policymakers, whether they're at the bank or in Downing Street or at the Treasury rather, that they could learn from uh, EM markets? Well, even recently we had the famous, we called Fragile Five. This happened back in 2017, 2018. We had bunch of um, well, five countries in emerging markets that were actually facing the same the same dilemma. We had current account deficits, concerns about growth, uh, concerns about the fiscal, and uh, and the market just pushed them to the end. So it was really intimidated by the markets, as as your phrase was saying. It was definitely the market say you do need to do something, otherwise we are just gonna continue actually selling. It's it's kind of speculative. From the markets, but I would believe that uh, even the locals, some countries, especially emerging markets, that has a major local markets, and they just stop buying. So if you don't, if your government and you're not being able to finance your own accounts with your local markets, which is in the case of UK, for example, uh, you need to increase the price. So basically, yes, you will find a price, but at the price that the market wants to pay, not the price that the treasury wants. So it's basically what you say in economics, everything has a price. Mm. You will find demand, but maybe the price is wrong. And what's the timescale for all of this in your, in your mind? Well, um, I don't know developed markets, but emerging markets, it can drag for a long time. It could drag actually six to nine months. Uh, Tim, do you think that sounds a reasonable uh, case here in the UK, or might it might it be different? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly possible that we, if nothing else, we, you, you know, I think you probably do want a bit more risk premium. You know, we, we, this has been a unusually intense kind of volatile period for UK assets, so you probably do want to, you know, you, you do want a higher risk premium there. So I think it's possible we move to a situation where. Yeah, essentially, you know, yields. It's possible the last sort of um, post-financial crisis period has been a bit unusual with, you know, UK yields below US yields, for example. Um, you know, I think we could move to, to something more like the sort of 2003, 2007 period where, you know, UK real yields were higher than the US. You have, you know, slightly higher real yields and that, that helps you attract, um, you know, inward, inward capital flows. Um, uh, we're actually not far from that. You know, if you take um, um, sort of five-year UK real yields, and you need to adjust them up a bit because they they work off the RPI measure. But if you sort of add add sort of uh, you know 100 basis points onto them to, to to do that adjustment, you're actually not far off where US five-year real yields are now. So you know we're kind of already creeping towards that uh, position. And I think that would you know that wouldn't necessarily be an unhealthy state for the for the economy. I think what you know what the UK has lacked probably over the last um, 20 years is kind of la- you know had disappointing kind of levels of investment. Um, you know um, uh, so you know higher real yields probably mean a bit less consumption and bit more investment. I think that's probably, you know, a reasonably healthy outcome, actually, in the long term. Not a, not a bad place to be. Okay, well, earlier I asked Salman Ahmed, who is Fidelity's Global Head of Macroeconomics and Strategic Asset Allocation, for a little bit more context. Salman, you're an economist. Can you put this into context for me, please? What do you expect to be the impact on the British economy over the medium term of all of these ructions that we've been looking at in, in markets over the last few days? Sure. So basically, the, the most important underlying forces that bond vigilantes have you know, woken up in the sense like there is a significant repricing of base level interest rates, especially real rates happening. Uh, the central bank reaction functions are very different right now because inflation is so high. So the increase in this real rate, uh, which is we are experiencing right now, uh, is going to have material impact on sustainability of debt. So debt ratios have been rising uh, significantly over the last 20 years. And especially after COVID, there was another big surge in public debt ratios, especially which happened. 
and that perhaps was the most important macro legacy of the of the pandemic crisis and now that we are experiencing these uh, increase in real rates i.e. rates adjusted for inflation uh, we have question marks around medium term debt sustainability of major developed markets especially the uk and let's not forget the war uh, in ukraine has played an important role here uh, because it has really uh, increased those inflationary forces forcing the central banks uh, to be become more hostile and that's where i think the medium term implications are that you know their sustainability under pressure and question marks around that and whether this will lead to an inflationary burst going going forward as the system starts to delever so in terms of the impact on government policy first of all in terms of government spending let's talk about that and then perhaps talk about households separately but um from a from a government point of view um what does this mean so basically fiscal uh, spending uh, has been increasing in europe and uk for for a good reason which is that you know energy prices had risen so sharply in fact if the government hadn't stepped in we were looking at a very extreme consumption shock so the fact that energy prices were capped was was uh, transferred the risk from household sector to the government uh, balance sheet for what has been uh, problematic is is adding on to that fiscal spending via further tax cuts and what we have seen that's where the confidence has taken a knock because inflation is still very high uh because of the mismatches between demand and supply coming from from the pandemic because of the impact of the war now you have a fiscal stimulus in the case of uk you know more than 10% at a time when central banks especially the boe has no room to 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 provide monetary accommodation so so that mixture puts a very different complexion uh to to these fiscal policy easing which we are experiencing right now and then of course we are seeing that in in a major repricing of of risk premium when it comes to uh a lending to the government i.e. government bond yields so the bank of england's got no room for maneuver it sounds to me like you're saying the government has also painted itself into a corner yes so basically there was no fiscal space uh available and and i think this uh, uh this uh, across the board tax cut we have seen in the uk has really uh tested uh, the limits of that fiscal space over the last 20 years uh, we've had been in, uh, in an environment where inflation was not a problem uh and 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 central banks therefore uh, were able to provide a lot of liquidity a lot of monetary accommodation time and time again when uh, the economic system or the markets uh, came under pressure but of course now with inflation north of 8% touching 10% uh we have a different setup where the central banks cannot provide that kind of liquidity accommodation and then on top of that we got a very strong fiscal so so the combinations have completely shifted and and, and as i mentioned earlier that has really shaken up and woken up bond vigilantes and in terms of the real economy what would the impact be so the question would be is uh, this increase in real rates sustainable that's the most important question now uh in the us we have got 10 year real rates now touching 1.5% uh and that's a very extremely high level if you consider the fact that we have so much debt in the system especially on the public balance sheets uh so going forward let's take the example of uk because obviously it's front and center of minds right now uh the household sector's most important exposure is through the housing market so if these rates were to sustain so this there's a lot of volatility at one point we had terminal rates pricing for for bank of england uh, touching 6% uh 
So let me put those numbers in perspective. If if the Bank of England were to deliver on those expectations, uh, uh, the mortgage rates uh, on a normal, typical mortgage may be north of 7% uh, next year. Now, please consider that in 2022 Q1, the average mortgage rate was 1.91%. So the problem is that if these uh, rates increases uh, entrench and remain uh, in the system for uh, for a while longer, next year or, uh, a lot of this book of mortgages will roll over from 1.91% to 7%. That's a huge shock. So a typical mortgage will increase from 850 pounds to, you know, some estimates are coming out around 1,500, 1,600 pounds. So that's a huge significant shock to the household balance sheet. And, 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 and in fact, the risk is, as I mentioned earlier, that this policy setup leads to an inflationary burst, i.e. you have a proper demand destruction because the system cannot take such high real rates. Salman, thank you very much indeed. Salman Ahmed. Lee, you manage a, a UK fund. Um, if things weren't difficult enough with the cost of living crisis, energy prices through the roof and so on, they've got a lot more difficult still, haven't they? It's very easy to paint a negative picture. And I think we're always relatively cynical as investors in the UK. So we're always looking for the doom and gloom. And we love talking about bad things, I suppose. But I think we always have to then think, have we reached the point where all of that bad news is priced into the markets, the opportunity set, etc. in front of us? Do you think we are now? No. And I think the, the, the reason for that is we still have some significant uh, downward pressure on earnings from a host of dif- for a host of different reasons, whether it's energy prices, uh, food inflation, the cost uh, pressures that we're seeing in terms of labour markets and so forth, that will uh, are likely to persist for some time. Uh, and I think there's a difference between some of the issues like energy and food that are relatively easy as a company to pass through because everyone sees that they're a, a global issue, etc. But I think once we get into things like labour issues and so forth, that's harder to pass through in terms of price rises because the end customer, whether it's a, a much bigger company or whether it's the consumer, is less happy to take that or is more reluctant on the basis that that's a company-specific issue, how many people you employ, what you pay them, etc. It's not a global energy price, etc. So we're going to get into a period where margins will be affected, undoubtedly. We may see some demand destruction from the, the rise in, in prices and so forth. So I think we're into a tough period, and I think we need to be a little bit more selective as to the opportunities that we pick. But what's interesting to, to remember, and maybe in contrast to some of the emerging markets that we've been referring to, is... The UK stock market is a very different beast to the UK economy. You know, circa well over 70% of earnings are generated overseas. And so it's very easy to flex where we actually invest. So much of what we've been talking about is specific to the UK in terms of what uh, it affects individuals that live here, etc. But many, many of the companies that we talk about and we invest in are, are overseas companies to to a very large degree. So it's very easy to flex what we what we do in the portfolios. And uh, I'm interested in the opportunities that you say might, might arise. Um, I don't know if you're already sort of emerging from the bunker and looking for them at the moment. I always try and say to people that investing is 
is a little bit like the difference between the weather and climate change. What we're seeing at the moment is the weather. All of the day-to-day stuff that causes the volatility that we come in and we see something's up or down a few percent, etc. The climate change is where we actually want to position ourselves for the next three, four, five years in terms of maybe the themes of investment that are happening and going on or maybe looking at business plans that will take time to, to take effect. And so maybe the weather provides us the opportunities and we may be looking at XYZ PLC and all of a sudden it's down 10% because of what happened last week. Nothing to do necessarily with the company. And so that provides us the opportunity to say, actually, is it affected? If not, it's an opportunity to buy it. But then clearly the reaction of the bond markets does create some new information. And if there's a company that's highly indebted, yes, clearly it will be affected by it. Even if we liked it before, all of a sudden it's changed the outlook for that company. Let's move away from the UK then to the US. Now, Tim, um, you and I spoke a little bit earlier this year um, about the chances of a recession. And it's a continuing topic. Um, I've seen lots about it in the uh, in the press today. One of the uh, the Fed members is um, is speaking in, in relatively rosy terms. Where, where do you think things will go? Yes, yeah, so when we last spoke, the central case was, was a pretty significant slowdown, but I, I thought that, that the US could sort of, you know, still had a chance of sort of getting away with the soft landing. I still think that's the case, actually. Maybe the probabilities maybe declined a little bit, but I still think, you know, if, any, if anywhere is going to avoid, um, you know, a, a really difficult time, it probably is the US. And you can see that a lot of the lagging lagging kind of data and a lot of the, lot of the labor market data remains very, very strong. So, um, you know, they still seem to be kind of continuing on in reasonably good fashion. I guess the, you know, the, 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 the slightly more difficult point is that you know the fed have proved to be you know we've had we've had a few more you know quite strong inflation releases and and, and the fed are proving to be pretty resilient pretty sort of um, steadfast in 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 continuing with their hiking cycles i guess that's the that's the challenge there is you know that that monetary policy is tightening pretty rapidly still and they're doing it so quickly you know you feel like they could they could sort of keep keep going while the lagging data stays good and then and then there's sort of be a sort of you know um, uh, a sort of whipsaw effect, really, where they you know they, they they tighten policy way way beyond what is needed, and that's a good prompt maybe to uh, people who didn't hear the last episode of Rich Pickings, where we had Steve Ellis, the CIO of fixed income, who was making that point the uh, the concern of an overshoot that they tighten too far, um, and then um, uh, it comes back to bite them. And Andressa, um, just one final point on emerging markets. We've been talking about them in comparison with what's going on in in the UK, but all of this is um, it's continuing to play out. It's a global phenomenon, the strong dollar as well in particular. Where do you expect emerging markets to, um, uh, to, to go over the next few months? Yeah, emerging market as a whole, it has become um, an unloved asset class, <laughs> mainly because obviously you have the risk of the facts, plus some regions don't give you this premium that we were talking about. But some regions do. And, uh, and I think if you can actually pick here and there, I know they're going to ask me what is my my hot cake, so I, I save, save it for, save later. for later. Exactly, I'll save it for later. But I would say emerging markets has already passed through these episodes of a crisis and tests so many times. So we are kind of relaxed in a sense that this is just one more. The difference this time is that we have a war. Obviously, we have a war in our corner. Uh, we have uh, concerns about it. We have uh, the, the, all the implications that a war can cause in terms of commodity prices. There is a China as well that is still in the zero COVID policy. Obviously, we need to focus on the October uh, Party Congress that is going to happen mid-October. So there's still all the things that is just the Fed and just the UK particularly. There are things going on as well in emerging markets that are that affect 
affecting the whole mood. So it's it's a much more broader, it's a broader event. Uh, but having said that, where emerging market is at the moment, as I said, at the moment is an unloved asset class because it has all these risks. But on the other hand, um, technically speaking, uh, because it is unloved, you don't have m many positions there. So the positions are very clean. Technically speaking, as soon as something changes a little bit, and as Lee was mentioning, as soon as you see some opportunities, uh, this money is going to fly into emerging markets. So you better to anticipate. So technically, very clean slate. You can actually buy anything because it is very, there's no heavy positions. Second is valuations. You are as well topping uh, levels that you haven't seen for a long time. So valuations, technicals. And in, on the valuations front, and if I can just anticipate a little bit my hot potato, you can see that some central banks have already, for example, tightened monetary policy much earlier than the Fed. In fact, uh, we in emerging markets were saying that the Fed was behind the curve for a long time because we saw Brazil actually starting already early 2021. Then you saw Chile, Mexico. So most of the Latin, because Latin has a history of hyperinflation, they were the first ones actually to come with a, with a solution. And look where we are now in these credits. We have much forecast of inflation much lower. So they anchor inflation expectations. And that's what I expect for the Fed and for UK is to anchor inflation expectations. Uh, and then we can actually uh, take a deep breath and, 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 and pile in. Highland again. But interesting that you were um, highlighting a number of things there um, across the board, particularly in Latam, not crowded positions, valuations are pretty attractive at the moment, and the central banks are ahead of the game. So if it just needs a little bit to tip things over and perhaps, um, where, where would you be looking for those green shoots? For the green shoots, definitely Latin America was the first one to start hiking. And it's the ones that you start seeing these inflation expectations coming down closer to the target. Brazil, because it was the first one to come to the um, to the hiking cycle, and uh, and also has hiked much more than what we call the neutral rate. So they are much beyond, they are in a much restricted territory. Uh, then after that, I would say Mexico is going to the same direction. So if I could say in terms of the regions, LATAM is the first one. Um, Asia is still lagging, and C is lagging a lot. Okay. And uh, Tim, I didn't give you the opportunity to um, flag where you see the opportunities at the moment. From a sort of long-term value perspective, I do I do really quite like US real yields. So US inflation-linked bonds um, here, you know, 1.5% sort of 10-year real yield. I think that gives you actually quite a lot of protection. You know, that, that could be a the Fed could be sort of permanent, have permanent, you know, restrictive policy for for for, for ten years almost, and 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 still have some value there. The scale into that position, I think there's there's some risk that we move to sort of two percent kind of real yield. That's the sort of that would be a sort of um, a pre GFC kind of um, uh, kind of level, but definitely starting to see some good value there. I think. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed. We're almost at the end, but there's still time to play the rich pickings parlor game: hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop? like a hot potato. Um, Andressa, you said you had yours all yeah. saved up. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's start with your hot hint. cake. Um, definitely, I would say if I could choose asset class would be um, raids in Latam. That would be my hot cake. My hot potato, even though it's not my asset class, but it would be uh, euro. Would euro, be you're dropping, dropping the euro. Okay. And Lee, how about you? Your hot cakes, first of all. Well, I, I think I'm new to this, so I might get it all mixed up and get my cakes muddled. Maybe a bit like... Um, King, King Alfred. Alfred, yeah. <laughs> so um, don't burn them. Yeah, that was a long time ago, there. So hopefully we moved on. Um, I think uh, because I think that the leisure stroke consumer side will bear the brunt of the downturn. I'm very reluctant to to go into certainly leisure stocks, and certainly any that need any refinancing. So I'm staying well clear of that. Though I am very conscious that um, the UK all of a sudden has become 
much cheaper as an asset class to to overseas buyers. I think they. Uh, Tim will correct me here, but I think the currency sterling since the Brexit referendum is down 25%-ish. So that's a 25% discount to any overseas buyers for any assets. And so I think if I can find a handful of industrial stocks that are based in the UK um, but trade overseas, and that's probably the perfect scenario, those sorts of companies try and pick up UK assets. Lovely. Okay, thank you. And Tim? Yes, I think my 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 hot cake is uh, is U.S. real yields. Like I, like I said earlier, I think there's a good value there. I mean, you might still get a little bit burned, so it's sort of scale in. You know, depending on when exactly when the Fed do pivot dovish, but I sort of scale into into that. Um, hot potato. Yeah, I'm still not very keen on very credit risky assets. I'd probably probably still kind of avoid. Um, you know, high yield, particularly U.S. high yield, because I don't. You know, there's there's not a great deal of value there yet. We, you know, about 500 basis points sort of spread there. I mean, you know, we'd be looking at for a sort of, you know, mildish recession, wanting more like seven or 800 basis points, I think there. So, so it's not worth it. avoid that for the moment. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you to Andressa, to Lee and Tim for joining me, and also to Salman Ahmed. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to read more on any of the topics we've covered today, please head to your local Fidelity website or to fidelityinternational.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do like, share and subscribe. The producer today was Holly Eastman, with production support from Connor Bailey and a special mention to Adam Sheldrake. From all of us at Fidelity, until next time, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.